And if you would stand one more time for the reading of God's word. We're going to start in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, whom was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now in verse 46. And Mary said, The soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. And now we're going to go to Second Thessalonians, all of chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the, Lord, the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion 
so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may, be, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. You may be seated. Well, thank you so much, Craig and Nicole, and congratulations, one year, is their one year anniversary today. Yeah, thank you. Well, it is right and good for us to be thinking about the first coming and the second coming together, even in the passage, uh, passages that we read today, uh, you know, from, from the Gospels, you know, you see Jesus coming to a humble young woman, right? He came in weakness, but will come again in power. He came in humility, but will come in glory. He came to a poor family, but will return uh, as the king of kings. And so, you know, I, I love to think about the different words of songs and different uh, things that we celebrate. You know, originally, uh, the Hallelujah Chorus was an Easter piece, right? Uh, but now has become really uh, a piece that we celebrate at Christmas, and I think of these words, you know, it says that the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and, of, and he shall reign forever and ever. And you look and to see like this, this new uh, glorious return of Jesus, and all the wrong will be made right. Or one of my favorites is, uh, is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And even in that, you know, you see that uh, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. So even as we sing and as we, you know, get ready for the celebration of, of this, the coming of Jesus, in, in the first coming, we look to the second coming, and that's how we get to our passage today. We've been working our way through first and second Thessalonians, and so now we're here in chapter two. And so, and in chapter two, you really see that there's a lot of false information that was received by the Thessalonians about the end times, specifically that the day of the Lord had already come that God's final act of justice already came. And you think that might be interesting because they're still there, right? And they're still there and wondering, like, did we miss it? Is it here? What's happening? And so the context of our passage today is this false teaching, and specifically the false teaching that the day of the Lord had come. And so on this note, I highly recommend, if you haven't heard already, I highly recommend that you go back on our podcast and listen 
listen to November 13th sermon on the end times, uh, you know, it's something that I'm going to be really building upon. And so that is something that I encourage you uh, to go back to and listen to again if you, if you haven't. And so, you know, you look at this end times anxiety, and so we'll start in, the, in, in the, the passage in the very beginning that Paul calls them not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. And you notice that uh, worry and confusion often ensues as people wonder about the end, right? It's natural. What's going to happen? Where am I going to go? What's gonna, what, what is it going to be like? And so Paul had previously been teaching the Thessalonians about the end times, and, and specifically about a lot of this, and we'll see his, his repetition uh, later on. But as we begin to kind of understand what the day of the Lord is, because if that's the false teaching, if the false teaching is centered around the day of the Lord, then it's important for us to, to understand what that is. And so the day of the Lord is a technical term, the technical term, you know, bringing when, uh, when God was going to come in and make the wrong right. And so if you check out this diagram, we all love, don't we love end times diagrams, you know, as Christians? And so I figured I can't not bring an end times diagram, but but, so this is a very simplified view of what it would be like to understand the end times as a Jewish person. And so as you see these kind of two realms, if time is going from left to right, and that you know we're in this current realm that's dominated by sin and death and, and destruction, but that God was going to bring in this event called the day of the Lord, and on the day of the Lord, you know, the wrong would be made right, and that he would usher in this new world of right righteousness and new life and justice and all this would happen. Well, Paul really builds upon this idea of of this Jewish understanding, Paul being a good Jew and moving forward of like, okay, what's going to happen? Clearly Jesus came. We celebrate at Christmas. Clearly Jesus came but the day of the Lord didn't happen, right? And so if you look at the next slide, the, the kind of Pauline understanding is that these two worlds are now intermingled with one another. That at the first coming of Jesus, he began this the kingdom of God and all that was going to be happening, you and I, we can have real new life in this world, can't we? Like we can defeat sin, we can surrender to the Lord, we can be refreshed spiritually, all these things can happen. And yet we're still looking to a future day of the Lord that's coming when, you know, in its fullness, all of these things were going to be happening. So we live, if you look at the diagram, we kind of live right where that red blotch is. We, we live in between the first and second coming. We live in the football, if you've ever heard about it like that. We live right there in the football. And so it's right for you to go watch today. But, um, but so... We live in the football, and in that football, maybe you've heard, you know, a, a preacher or a uh, theologian, you know, talk about the already and the not yet. And so that's a description of this right here, that we live in the already. The, we're so close, right? We have the Holy Spirit. God has given us new life, and yet we're waiting for the final day when God is going to, you know, fully and utterly deal with sin and destruction. And so this is a helpful diagram, I think, for us as we think about this passage because the, the people were waiting for the day of the Lord to come. And this is, I think, a good description of that, the already and the not yet and where we would go. 
The day of the Lord, as you can see even from our passage, you know, should never inspire fear in us, but always hope and confidence. You know, he's saying, even in the very beginning, stay faithful to Jesus and walk in his ways. We don't need to speculate or be nervous about the end because it's going to be clear. He says there's clear things that are going to be happen. In fact, so clear that Paul tells the church, you know, like that the end didn't come specifically for a reason, right? Here we are in verse 3. He says that the day, the, the end isn't come because there's some things that have to happen. He says, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And so we get to look at this, this very interesting passage in 2 Thessalonians 2. Arguably, some call it, you know, one of the more really difficult passages to interpret, so please have grace on me. Um, I w- will do our best here to, to look to see what's going on with this passage. It's a little confusing to us But to the people of Thessalonica, it would have been simple. Because if you look at a little phrase like here in verse 5, where it says, Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? And so there's some of this that Paul had already told the Thessalonians, and he's now reminding them. He's encouraging them. He's saying, like, don't worry. Like, you're, you're doing good. Keep walking with the Lord. And so from this, we understand that there is going to be a future rebellion. And there's a character in the story called the man of lawlessness, or he's also called the son of destruction, who must come first. And so we can't predict the end. People have tried, haven't they? Uh, there, but there are things that we can know about the end. I'm, I'm convinced personally that if you, uh, if you know what's going to happen, then you're probably wrong because, because God is doing something unique and, and I, he hasn't given us all the details. He, he just hasn't. And I think for a good reason, because we as people would be so focused and so brooding over these last details that we would miss living our lives for Jesus. And so even in this passage, yes, we're going to talk about end times, but the passage isn't about just that. The passage is about how will you walk with Jesus in new life moving forward. So we're still looking for this future event to happen. It's important for us not to have what some theologians call an over-realized eschatology. So eschatology is the, the study of last things or the nature of last things. And so we're still waiting. It's important for us as the church to, to affirm that, that we are still waiting for God to act and for this day of the Lord to come. And so we, we have questions of course, like what about the timing or who is it? What will it be like? What will the man of lawlessness be like? Who will he or, uh, you know, what will it be like? And so we see a great uprising of evil and yet this great movement of the church and of faith and of what, what, he's, what he's doing, what God is doing. So here's what we know. If you look at your passage, we know that it starts off in verse 3 that there's a, this lawless man, the son of destruction. I, I, it seems like from the context that he is a man. He's a human. Uh, he's going to be revealed. And at that time, he's going to exalt himself. He's going to call people to worship him and proclaiming himself to be God in verse 4. 
But in verse 8, he's swiftly defeated. And then in verse 10, there's people who have aligned kind of like with his lies and who he is, and they're also going to perish. Verse 9, it says that he's come with you know, the activity and the power of Satan, that there's going to be signs and wonders that are going to accompany uh, this man of lawlessness. One writer describes them as, as terrible appearances which elicit fright and horror. It's because there's these, this counterfeit nature to, to his works and to the man of lawlessness because he's aligned himself with evil. And so as the church, we get to align ourselves with truth and with God's word. And when we do that, we have confidence in the day of hope, right? We have, we have confidence as we move forward. I really see this uh, as we study kind of the end times and who this is. Uh, I really see a connection to 1 John. And so you don't need to flip there, but I'm going to read a couple passages from 1 John the first is in chapter 2, uh, verse 18. Listen to how similar this talk about, you know, many times people call the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, all this. Listen to what John says. Children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And so even John, you know, as we begin to understand this man of lawlessness, that he says that there's one who's coming, but there's many who have come already. That there's a, an, an evilness, a, uh, a connection between the evil in this world and the evil of the kingdoms, that, that these are all by the, this power of Satan. Or in, in chapter 2, uh, verse 22, of 1 John. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Or chapter 4 of 1 John. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And so John seems to mention, you can flip back over to, to 2 Thessalonians, that John seems to mention that there's this spirit of the Antichrist that's already in the world and already working. And so we as the church can, can affirm that and, and see the work of evil around us. We can see wrong being touted as that which is right. And we can say, no, that's not the way it should be. And so I'm not going to only take a spiritual approach to, this, to interpreting this passage, but it's very important for us to note that evil is in this world. And as we're looking to the end we're looking to the day of the Lord when all will be set right. So what's, what else are we looking, forward, looking towards? In verse 3, it says that 
The day won't come unless the rebellion comes first. And so that word rebellion comes from the word uh, that we get the word apostasy. And so it's a falling away. And so he's describing that there's going to be a great time of falling away when people, maybe that you loved and cared for, you know, would say like, nah, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not walking that way anymore. I'm not going to go down that path of Jesus. And so as I've kind of processed through this as well as the whole, you know, as we've been studying end times through First and Second Thessalonians, it's really created a sense of urgency in my life. And I wonder if that's a, an urgency for us as a church. What, what is it like to share the gospel with the people around us in an urgent way? I think the early church, right, they were always like, come Lord Jesus. They were living in eager expectation that Jesus was going to return at any moment. And I think we can live with that eager expectation also and say, like, God, give me, give us as a church a sense of urgency to love the people around us and therefore point them to Jesus and to say that there is a better way. And so also in verse 6, you see that there's something that is restraining back or holding back the man of lawlessness. Now, what's interesting in, verse, uh, in, in that verse is, is Paul says, you know what is restraining him, meaning that they know because he already told them, except he doesn't tell us, does he? And so this is one of those things that, uh, that to not get too far into the weeds, that we know that the restrainer, uh, for those of you who really like technical grammar, I know that's all of you, that in verse 6, he refers to this restraining force as in the neuter gender, grammatical gender, and then in verse 7, in the masculine grammatical gender. And so it confuses us a little bit because it could either be a he or it could be an it. And modern commentators, you know, would say, like, it could be anything like eight different things. And so I'm not going to give you the eight things because we don't know and they don't know. That's why they give you eight different options. And so... What we don't know is who or what this is restraining and holding back the man of lawlessness. But I think the better question is not who or what is restraining, but why is the restraining happening? Why is there restraining? It says the restraining so that, verse 6, so that he may be revealed in his time. At the proper time. So God is working, and God is even using the evil in this world to work and to, to accomplish his purposes until the proper time. Nothing happens outside of God's perfect timing. And so we wait. We've waited a long time, it feels like, doesn't it? We've waited 2,000 years, and so you think, why the delay? Why is there a delay? Why are we still waiting for God to return? And for that, I, my, my, I feel like it's helpful to, to, to flip over to 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter, in writing about the end times in verse 8, he says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so I think the context here in Second Peter is Peter writing about the end times, and he says, the Lord's delay is graciousness to people. It's, he's calling people to repent. So we are waiting even now for the Lord's return, but we have business to do, and the business is to share the love of Christ with as many as we can, because God's delay is, is, is his patience to us, right? His forbearance, and he's saying, wait a second, and so I, 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 Jesus himself also, you can go back to 1 Thessalonians. I mean, Jesus also in Matthew 24, he says that the love of many are gonna grow cold. And so we see that there's some that are gonna be perishing in, in, here in our, our passage, verse 10. And they're gonna be perishing, some, because they've refused to love the truth and so be saved. There are some that refuse to see truth for what it is and then to walk in it. I'm in debt to Geo Green here. He says, eternal destiny is bound up with truth. To embrace error, however powerfully and plausibly it may be presented, is dangerous business. In our age, when truth is increasingly viewed as relative and personal, Thoughts about the power and consequences of embracing error move to the periphery. And so we have an opportunity, church, to embrace truth, to hold up truth, and to say, we have been given the glorious word of God in the gospel. And, you know, even for, I think of, uh, like, all the different words that Paul uses about truth, right? I mean, in this little short passage, you have him talking about false signs and wonders and wicked deception, right? That they refuse to love the truth, that God brought a, a, a strong delusion, that some would believe what is false and some didn't believe the truth. So there's this, this, this big idea in the passage that some are embracing this error because there's a strong delusion, verse 11, a strong delusion that comes that they may believe what is false. And so true things are becoming false and false things are becoming true. And isn't that kind of a description of what happens in our culture today? that people are embracing falsehood as if it were truth, and then they're seeing truth, and then they're saying it's false. Undoubtedly, there are some, you know, even hearing my voice now, that have embraced different aspects and avenues of falsehood. There's some who have heard the clear teaching of the Word of God, and then they're like, nah, I don't know. I don't know. Do I really need to follow that? That's why, church, we need one another. We need one another to embrace truth and then to point each other to truth and to say, you know, brother or sister, don't go down that path. 
I've been down there and I saw the error. Let's walk in truth together. We need people like that in our lives. I've thought a lot about uh, young people this, this week. And so for those of you who are young, maybe you've uh, come to know the Lord as a kid and then as you grow up in college and beyond and you're saying, you know, like, is truth, is Christianity really true? Like, can I really trust the word of God? And you look at a passage like this and you see that many people are gonna walk away, that many people are gonna refuse to love the truth. And so, church body, what better encouragement to us than to say, let's walk in the truth more and more. Let's, let's hold up God's truth so that when there are people who have walked away, we can say, no, there's a better way. Let's walk together. I think of friends and, and, and young kids, you know, that have, have chosen to say, you know, like, nope, I'm not going to go down that path. And we can always point people back to the truth. We can always point them to following Jesus. And so I think we could all maybe practice a phrase that I've been working on. And the phrase is this, maybe I'm wrong about this. You could say it. Maybe I'm wrong. What if we all walked in humility and in grace? What if we walked with each other? And for those of you who know, you feel like you know, you know that you're walking down a path that your parents or that godly people have said is going to bring destruction, maybe you should pause. Maybe you should say, I, I need people to come alongside of me to help point me to the truth. We need each other especially when, you know, we talk about this once and for all truth that's handed down to the saints. I think of uh, the book of Jude in verse three, he says this, he says, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There is going to be a perversion of truth. And so, church, let us stand and may our lives reflect the truth and the, and the grace that's coming. Because, go back to Second Thessalonians, this strong delusion, God is going to give people over to exactly what they want. G.K. Beale in his Theology of Idolatry, he says, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. It's, it's basically God allowing them to have what they always wanted. In their pursuit of idols, they become what they are. God's going to allow you to become who you want to become. He's a gentleman in that sense. And so, desire the greater things. Desire the Lord Jesus. May your life be like him. I think the, the most challenging aspect of the passage for me personally has been in, in, in verse 12, where he says, you know, that there's some who didn't believe the truth, but they, had, they took pleasure in unrighteousness. 
And may it never be. May it never be, church, that we take pleasure in unrighteousness. I think about my own life in, you know, my battles against sin. And, you know, for me, one of the, one of the first steps is asking myself the question, do I really want to get rid of this sin? Because if I don't really want to, it's going to remain. And if you take pleasure in, right, in unrighteousness, even just a little bit of pleasure in it, it's going to remain. But church, there's a better way. You can be free. And that's why, you know, the rest of the passage you see, there's kind of like a break there in, in, in verse 13 to the end. Because, because Paul, going from this teaching about the end times, he says, but wait a second, you should be, you, should, you can give thanks you can live lives of thankfulness and, and live lives directed to the Lord. And so church are kind of like this final stanza is that we would stand firm in the finished work of Jesus. There is good news. Verse 8, that Jesus will deliver his people and will deal fully with the rebellion and any king who stands in the way of God's justice and people. And how will he do it? Look at, look at it. Verse 8, how will he do it? With his mere breath. He will destroy the man of lawlessness. And so he calls us and he says, stand firm holding on to the traditions that you were taught. Okay, that's interesting. Especially being a Protestant church. Hold on to the traditions and what you were taught. What, what were we given? We were given the very word of God. We were, the, the traditions refer to that which was handed down to you. What was handed down to us, church? The words of God that we have. We can memorize them and cling to them. We can study them. We want to walk with Jesus in an increasing way, even when it becomes more and more countercultural to do so. Make following Jesus natural part of your life regularly confess sin and, and experience grace and share that grace with others. Families, you want your kids to walk with Jesus? Confess sin and live in the graciousness of God and share that with your kids. Point them to, point them to Jesus in greater and greater ways. And so you see the stand firm, the stand firm. It's holding to that. It's, it's doing it together, right? Because it takes great courage to do so. So we do it together. And so you see this, that evil is going to rise up, but so will the supernatural work of grace in people's lives. I think the best form of evangelism are lives that are enamored with Jesus. He's definitely the most interesting and awe-inspiring figure in history. And if you want to transform families and neighborhoods, spend time, more time following Jesus than any other endeavor that you've given yourself to. Teach your kids to embrace the gospel, the gospel of his glorious truth. And if you look, if you see how the, how the passage is ending here, he says that there is great comfort that will come. Right? It's comfort that's going to establish us. It's, it's eternal comfort that he already has given us. The Lord gave the eternal comfort, and he's going to pour itself out in good work and word. And so we get to church, stand firm together. 
I think about church here on the west side. What would it be like for us to stand firm in the truth? No matter what culture is saying, we walk in the word. We encourage, we, we know each other enough to walk alongside them and say, you know what, no, you're going the wrong path. Let's go this right path. Let's know each other and care for one another. Let's stand firm together. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you so very much for your glorious return in power. God, you are going to deal fully and utterly with sin. God, we look at the systems of this world and we know that they are perfectly designed to do what they do. That people will fall away, that there's going to be some who embrace error, as truth and truth is error. And so we say, Lord Jesus, protect us. May we stand firm together. May we encourage one another as the body. May we know that you and you alone are worth all of our lives and all of our endeavors. God, I pray for a church that, that we would spend more time thinking about you, Jesus, and walking with you and sharing you than anything else that we do. So God, as we embrace and uh, celebrate your first coming, may we embrace and celebrate your second coming. And may we have the urgency that only you can bring. Lord Jesus, may we stand firm. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen.